for partnerships, um, you need to you need to reach out and build meaningful alliances to expand your your reach and your capabilities. You've got to keep following up. Ah, and for goodness sakes, you got to keep your ego in check. <laughs> you, know, you have to remember whether your partner is a service provider or a donor, whether they're a, a construction company representative, they have their priorities. And in many cases, they have to report to boards or supervisors. So treat them all with respect. Keep them in the loop on a regular basis. Acknowledge their important contributions. And, you know, you use this phrase right at the beginning. Work towards win-win solutions when problems do crop up. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to record yet another episode of our podcast. This is the Gripe Podcast, and I'm your host, Farhat Khan. In this podcast, we learn how to grow mission-driven organizations. You can find more information about this episode on our website at gripe.ca slash podcast. In this episode, I speak to Mike Ward. Mike is a former Canadian diplomat, and he is currently the executive director of the Canadian Turkey Business Council. In the past, Mike was the head of mission at the Canadian consulate in Turkey, and he was also the section head at the Canadian embassy in Saudi Arabia. During his time representing Canada overseas, Mike has brokered many trade deals between countries. And having negotiated many high-profile business deals between the highest levels of governments, you can tell, Mike knows a thing or two about diplomacy and the power of building alliances. In this episode, I will talk to Mike about why nonprofits should invest more in building partnerships and how to go about creating these partnerships in your ecosystem. So let's get started. Hi, Mike. It's great to have you on our podcast today. Thank you, Farhad. So, Mike, uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Sure, sure, Farhad. I, uh, until about a year ago, I was president of Multi-Faith Housing Initiative, or MHI. It's a charitable, nonprofit, affordable housing organization that serves the Ottawa community. Our mission is to provide safe, well-maintained, affordable housing and support services for individuals and families who are either homeless or at risk of homelessness. Uh, we receive support from our members, which are over 80 faith groups, including Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Baha'i, Jewish, as well as from the community at large. Uh, we currently house over 400 individuals. And uh, just uh, to target a milestone, about two years ago, we completed a $25 million, 98-unit housing complex in Barhaven. And we are currently working on a $15 million, 40-unit facility that will cater solely to homeless veterans, a group that, until the past few years, was ignored far too long uh, in terms of uh, housing needs. Um, although I stepped down as president uh, of MHI, uh, I'm still active on a number of fronts, including on the governance committee and on the Veterans House Committee. And then I, I switched gears and I, I'm also uh, a vice president of the NATO Association of Canada. Primary mission of that worthwhile group is to educate Canadians about the importance of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, in addition, I'm a business consultant for international trade and investment, particularly for Canadian firms doing business in Turkey and the Middle East, North Africa region. Uh, I also volunteer on the mental health front, first at a local church that provides support for caregivers of mentally ill family members. And I'm also a member of the Ottawa General Hospital's emergency support and care assistance team. And then finally, uh, for over 25 years, I was Canadian diplomat with postings in a number of locations around the world. 
Wow, that's fantastic, Mike. Alrighty. So you're actually actively involved involved in the nonprofit area, nonprofit like work here in Ottawa. Uh, so what inspired you to work in this area? Well, uh, growing older, I realized how important it is for all of us to do what we can to help others, whether it's to build and operate more affordable housing or reaching out to those trying to cope with emotional issues and who doesn't need that sort of support one time or another. Um, so it, it, it just seemed to me to be a, uh, something that, um, that, um, that I should be involved with. Um, I was also concerned about international security threats. So that's why I joined the NATO Association. Uh, it's important that Canada, Canadians realize how important it is for Canada to maintain a strong, invisible profile on NATO. I suppose in many ways, I'm just trying to make up for lost time and for my own earlier ignorance uh, on what really matters. So it's really never too late to start helping out. And I, I hope this podcast may trigger a volunteer gene and one or more of your listeners, maybe they'll get involved in supporting the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Mike, uh, given your experience working in a number of different organizations and even like, like working overseas as well as, as a Canadian diplomat, uh, you probably had to like work with a, a number of different organizations and build alliances. Uh, why is it important for nonprofits to build alliances in their ecosystem? You think? Ah, uh-huh. well, Farhad, it's the types of nonprofits with which I'm associated tend to be relatively small operations, but they have high aspirations. So while they may have also have dedicated volunteers, they tend to have limited operational budgets, a small number of paid staff a narrow bandwidth of competencies, and they may not even be that well-known, even in their own ecosystems. In other words, they can be easily challenged to achieve meaningful results. So what is the way out for them? How do they make the impact they're striving to achieve? Well, if I've learned anything, including from my years overseas, it's that um, there's no better approach than to solving organizational challenges than following the old saying, two heads are better than one. And I've seen firsthand how collaborating with complementary organizations can set these groups on a much more fulfilling trajectory. So if I was to take multi-faith housing initiative, for example, it started just over 15 years ago as a small group of well-meaning volunteer parishioners from various faith backgrounds in the Ottawa area. They recognized a growing need to provide affordable housing. We operated on a shoestring budget when we started out. And considering our capacity, we did a very good job housing upwards of order, approximately 40 persons uh, in the last, uh, you know, in the, maybe the first uh, 10 years of our, our existence. But our footprint was very limited. And in terms of staff, we had an executive director and not much more. About seven years ago, we began a transformation. We hired a new executive director and we generally brought in a, gradually brought in a new cadre of board members based more on skill sets than their faith affiliations. And then we looked to the broader affordable housing ecosystem in Ottawa to see how we could have more of an impact. So in particular, we looked at to harness the strengths and abilities of other organizations and related parts of our ecosystems to help us address our challenges and our weaknesses. What we found out was that strategic partnerships help provide higher quality programs and services. They can leverage additional funding. They can broaden or strengthen the impact of programs on target clients and on the community. And they can also improve administrative efficiency. Another plus from strategic partnerships is that they can benefit everyone, 
not just the organizations, but also the employees and the clients. So let me just give you a, elaborate on this a bit. Um, benefits to organizations can include broadening their relevance and increasing their market reach. A major benefit for clients can be a wider range of services stemming from a partnership. And employees can expand their development opportunities by being exposed to new perspectives and expertise. They'll develop new skills. And more generally, when they work, partnership deepens, deepens, deepens ties between complementary organizations and they foster collaboration and hopefully they promote the longevity of both entities. Now, there's going to be headwinds to consider. In particular, while partnerships can be mutually beneficial at so many levels, they should never be entered into lightly. Hmm. They require thoughtful considerations to ensure success. For example, a shared vision and passion is necessary for an effective partnership to succeed. Establishing a common purpose sets the foundation, and it acts as the glue to hold the group together. And clear communication between partners is extremely important. You can't operate in isolation. You certainly can't make major decisions independently. There has to be regular follow-up and consultation to maintain a healthy dynamic. So I'm delighted when I use, as I use MHI as an example, we have all those elements. So the lesson here is that a do-it-alone approach isn't the best strategy for growth and impact in the nonprofit sector. Collaboration with the right partners is key. Right, right. And we definitely have to have a win-win mentality with the partners. So it has to be a win-win for both ourselves and for the partner that we are working with so that it's it's mutually beneficial and we all have the same motivation. Alrighty. That's fantastic. Now, Mike, you actually had the chance to build a non-profit from the ground up almost, right? So if I were to build a non-profit right now or maybe like grow my non-profit, uh, what are some of the key partnerships that I should be looking for? Well, if I... If I took a sort of a broad view of this starting out, um, the purpose of the partnerships can vary. Uh, you could have um, a workforce development organization might want to partner with a business to identify opportunities for graduates of its training program or um, mm -hmm. a nonprofit that provides after school enrichment programs might want to partner with a school to broaden its reach. Right. Um, and then, to, to, to drill down just a little bit um, and come into more of my my uh, sphere, uh, a nonprofit organization in the affordable housing sector like like MHI might opt to merge with other groups that can provide complementary programs and perhaps even funding it can't obtain on its own. For example, for mental health counseling, which is what we're going to be having in in in, in Veterans House, and 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 I think the point you made um, uh, about it, you need the right fit. Uh, and it needs to be a win-win. And, and to do this, there needs to be a clear understanding of the objectives you are pursuing for your own organization. You have to know what are the gaps you're trying to fill. And then once you flesh that out, you need to be able to identify what groups can provide the service you're looking for, how well can they provide them, and if they're interested at all in helping you. Uh, and for this, you need key staff. And we do, with multi-faith housing, we have, we have an executive director who carries carries a lot of the load, knowledgeable about the affordable housing sector, engaged with key complementary sector groups in the Ottawa region, and a natural consensus builder and a leader. So, so you know, we've, we've got that strong office and, and her team, of course, strong office support. And, um, but, um, so whenever she comes to us 
with a new initiative that stretches our competencies. We, we look at this with the full knowledge that, that, that Suzanne Lee, that's her name, has already had meaningful discussions with the organizations and that these groups are ready, willing, and able to join us. But governance is key. So it goes without saying that nonprofits engaging in strategic partnerships with other organizations should only do so within the context of a board-approved policy that outlines the goals and parameters of those partnerships. Right. So, so at MHI, uh, the board and relevant MHI committees, and we have a bunch of committees, but the ones that are relevant for this are things like the development committee, the executive committee, and where appropriate, the finance committee. They have to be all closely involved in the approval and implementation of strategic partnerships. In fact, our board considers partnership proposals only after the relevant committees have weighed in with their recommendations. And we know from experience that good governance also includes developing a memorandum of understanding or similar documentation with partners. So these sorts of agreements cannot be entered into lightly. They need to be thoroughly discussed and vetted by the boards of both groups so that everyone in the strategic partnership is clear on the process, on respective deliverables, and on timelines. And of course, you want to keep that win-win scenario uh, in everybody's uh, head, uh, in mind for everyone. That's right. That's right. So there has to be a good alignment of the goals for sure. And then we have to have a due diligence process before entering a partnership. Absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic. Alrighty. So, so, so Mike, you mentioned that some strategic alliances were instrumental in the growth for the MHI uh, project that you're working on. And uh, particularly you're working on Veterans House right now. Um, so, uh, so how are the alliances helping you to grow your initiatives? Sure. Sure. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of background on the, on the Veterans House. The idea of providing that facility was hatched about half a dozen years ago. So this has been a long time in the making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the result of that effort, of course, is, is a 40-unit, three-floor facility costing about $15 million. It's now being built on the old Rock Air Base in the east end of Ottawa. It's nearing completion, and it's going to be opening later this year. It's a massive project, Farhad. Uh, and it has some elements that are far beyond what we are used to dealing with. In particular, mm. the plan calls for providing stable and affordable housing. Well, that's fine. We know that. But it talks about supportive services. And these services include helping veterans recover from physical health, mental health, and addiction-related issues. Now, our primary role is in the ownership, property development, and overall project management of this initiative. We have neither the capacity nor the expertise, though, to provide the many supportive services to the veterans who will soon be living in our new property. So what we've done is we've partnered with organizations that have the necessary skills and that share our vision and passion to the homeless veterans, to help homeless veterans. And if I were to zero in on some of the key service organizations involved with this, I'd have to include an organization called Centertown Affordable Housing Development Corporation, or CADCO which is also another nonprofit organization, but it develops affordable housing projects and provides consulting services. So CADCO was the development consultant for our earlier project in Barhaven, that 98-unit facility I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And they are taking on the project development role for Veterans House. So we've been around the block with them on this sort of project. We, uh, we work well together. We know what to expect. It's a good team and it's a good dynamic. Another 
another group we're working with, another partner is Ottawa Salus. So like MHI, it's a registered charity that has provided supportive housing in Ottawa for a number of years. But its focus and expertise is for persons with severe mental illness. So the partnership role for Salus in this project is to oversee the mental health program management for tenants in the building, including for addictions and for general mental health. And then we have other organizations that are more veteran related. They they include a group called Soldiers Helping Soldiers, which is a volunteer group of serving military personnel that connects homeless veterans with the services and benefits to which they're entitled. It will play a couple of key roles, including for community liaison, and it will run a tenant mentoring program. Wow. Veterans Affairs Canada is also involved, and they'll help with caseworker. They'll provide caseworker support, and they'll provide access to research materials for us. Even a group uh, known as Helmets to Hard Hats, they help former military personnel transition to construction jobs, um, and they're going to help us in securing funding support. Plus, some of their members are involved in, uh, in in project construction themselves. In other words, veterans building housing for veterans. Um, the, um, the Ottawa Legion, the Ontario Legion, rather, is also involved. They're providing funding support and, and related supports. And a group called Wounded Warriors is providing uh, uh, PTSD service dog training program. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll match service dogs with tenants who want them. We even have a, a group called Quilts. Let me think now. Quilts for Veterans House. And they'll be making quilts for every tenant. So it's, it's, it's quite a diverse and, and yet a cohesive group. And, and it's important to stress that we have known and worked with each of these partners for a number of years. We know them well. They know us. We all share a common vision when it comes to this project. And uh, we all want to see it succeed. That's incredible, Mike. And the fact that you're saying that you are really looking at it for the long term, so not just building the units, but also you want to um, ensure that the tenants are actually well taken care of for a long period of time, and they actually have the mental health support that they need. I think that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So many projects really like look at the short term and don't look at the longer term results. So I'm really impressed by this, okay. to be honest. Thank you for having All right. So, so Mike, uh, you were actually working with a number of different other nonprofits, um, and then a number of different qualified and vetted service providers. So, it must be quite a bit of work to maintain all the relationships with them. So, how do you do that? Like, what are some of the key things that we should keep in mind in maintaining partner relations over a longer period of time? Right. Well, um, my view, in order to keep these relationships going over the long run. Be it with financial donors, because they're, they're one group of partners, or the service providers, the other primary group of uh, partners. It's crucial to keep effective communication between all the parties. Um, for our strategic partners, partners, that means consulting with them in an open, consistent, timely fashion right from the start. So let, let me give you an example. Near the beginning of any major building project, we host a series of what they call charrettes. Charettes are, uh, are intensive workshops in which various stakeholders and experts are brought together to address particular design and functional issues of a pending development project. So they address such things as site and unit design issues, energy consumption, human comfort, building materials, and even landscaping issues. Uh, they're very functional, and they are a, street, it's a strategic way to make sure the communication process starts right off the bat between strategic Mm. partners, design specialists, 
and project management staff, among others. So we utilized the charrettes with great success for our facility in Barhaven, and there was no question that we'd hold a similar planning session for Veterans House with the first meeting taking place a good four years ago. So this is a project that's going to near completion um, later this year, hopefully. Um, and uh, if, if the SARS, if the, if the coronavirus um, lets us, um, and, um, and then it, the people will be in it. So four years ago, we started the charrette process. One of those earlier charrettes for Veterans House included representatives from Soldier Helping Soldiers, the Ontario Legion, Ottawa Salas, the architect for the building, and others. And that particular session that I'm thinking of focused on designing the grounds, planning the communal space, and focus on focusing on the mental health part of the building. Hmm. Um, so that, that charrette, so picture this, your bunch of us are in a large room, and the charrette opened up with a general outline of what the issues were that we were going to address. And then we formed breakout groups for the attendees to provide their input on specific topics. So some were focused on the mental health facility. Some were focused on designing the grounds, that, that sort of thing. So they got together. They came up with their recommendations. Uh, they made their presentations. A number of amendments were proposed and discussed. Things like making sure that the outside lawn and patio facilities provided sufficient privacy for tenants, that there was space for therapy dogs, and also mm. uh, they included design details for the common area, and there were suggestions for the mental health support services room. So we took those suggestions away with us, worked on the main house, and then we had another charrette where we reviewed amendments and we made a few other modifications. So these charrettes cover everything from building design to heating and insulation to the types of windows that are installed and the appliances bought. It's a very detailed and extremely important process. But you have to discuss these issues at the early stages so that there are no surprises, or at least fewer surprises, as the project gets underway. So the point is that we involved everyone from the start, and we were engaging them every step of the way, and we continue to engage them as we near the completion of the project. Of course, right now, we're working with our partners on a more functional aspects of our respective day-to-day roles and responsibilities as we prepare to fill the building with tenants soon and continue operations in the years to come. Now. That same sort of full and open communication paradigm applies with the other important group of partners. That would be our donors, those who provide the much needed funding for the project. Now, they're going to be donors who have supported us for various projects in the past. And naturally, they are top of mind when we started fundraising for the Veterans House project. And being a nonprofit with major ambitions, we are also keen to attract new donors. Whether they've supported us before or they are potential new donors, it's important that we build and maintain their interest and support in the project. They need to know what's going on and they need to be, need to be invited to key event. Things mm-hmm. like fundraising dinners, networking receptions, media events, our AGM, any opportunity that will, keep, that will add to their knowledge uh, and their comfort level with the project. And so, and so much the better if they interact with other donors because you know, that alone can serve to raise their, their interest level and even, in some cases, confirm their commitment. Right, right. So, so Mike, um, I understand that you actually have to work with a number of different key stakeholders for each organization in these planning sessions. And uh, there are a lot of moving parts in this. So, so many things can go wrong. Uh, what risk mitigation steps do you typically take in, in projects like this towards the beginning? 
Well, again, it gets down to the communication. It's uh, right. we have to know exactly what they're, they have to, we have to know what we're looking for. Uh, they have to know what we're looking for and we have to know if there's a good fit. Uh, if there are problems and there are problems, there's all sorts of things that come up in construction, mm. in, in, um, you know, there, there'll be communications issues. Uh, right now we have a problem with the, uh, with the COVID-19 issue because our office yeah. is closed. There you go. Checks are coming in and, um, and you know, things, we have to put things in the deposit checks in the bank. We have to pay bills as well. Uh, I was on a f- conference call earlier today discussing these, these related issues. So you have to be nimble. You have to be open-minded. You have to keep a cool head. Um, and you, you, you look to get things worked out and done as efficiently as possible. Mike, in your line of work, you must have to do a lot of cold outreach for maybe like potential financial donors or potential partners. Can you tell us uh, some of your secrets to do cold outreach? Certainly, certainly. Um, I'm pretty sure, uh, Farhad, that nobody likes receiving cold calls. And uh, <laughs> right. I, I can tell you from personal experience that I don't know of anyone who enjoys initiating those calls. Um, and one other thing, you need to prepare well in advance of making any fundraising calls. In, um, in our case, in the case of uh, Multi-Faith Housing Initiative, advanced preparation for the Veterans House uh, project included establishing a list of potential donors for the project. So this included both previous donors for other projects and, of course, new prospects. Now, as I've mentioned, we're a faith-based group. So as a result, donations from our traditional donor base, while greatly appreciated, are generally, not always, modest. So there are certainly exceptions. For example, the United Church of Canada has provided generous support in the past. But by and large, um, donations have tended to be modest over the years. When we moved to our first major project, the $25 million affordable housing facility in Barhaven, those traditional sources were sufficient because we also obtained substantial additional support from all three levels of government. But the $15 million Veterans House project created a new fundraising challenge since funding for the veteran segment of the overall homeless community rests with the federal government, not the province and not the city. The way things are currently set up, a narrower scope project, such as for the veterans homeless community, could not be singled out for funding by either the province or the city. They can't provide funding for particular homeless segments. But I hasten to add that that the city of Ottawa has certainly gone out of its way to provide other supports for the project in terms of, for example, infrastructure services. But as for the Mm. federal government, while it's been very supportive of Veterans House, including financially, it could not foot the bill, nor should it. And it was clearly incumbent on Multi-Faith Housing Initiative from the start to come up with complementary funding sources, and that's totally fair. So, um, so let's focus on the new donor prospects needed to make the project viable. We started out establishing a donor base that included past donors, of course, and we added to that by canvassing our board members, uh, strategic partners, and, and others to identify new prospects. Uh, the next thing we did is we developed a working list with categories for congregations, corporations, institutions, and individuals. And then, and this is quite important, 
we tried to identify a connection, someone who could personally link us with a potential donor. In this way, we wouldn't be making cold calls per se, but let's call them warm calls. So for example, if a board member identified a potential donor, we would ask that person to make the initial approach. If there was interest on the part of the potential donor, the board member would then suggest a meeting with our MHI fundraising staff. Uh, and it didn't always have to be a one-to-one scenario. For example, one of our well-connected contacts hosted a reception where he invited persons he felt had the resources and who might be interested in our project. So he provided the venue and the introduction for us to make our initial pitch. And then, of course, we, we followed up individually with those who expressed interest. And following up, well, that's the next major step after identifying the donors. In preparing for follow-up meetings with potential donors, it was important for us to develop what we refer to as our case for support. What this did is it set out the background and our vision for Veterans House, why it's needed, and the benefits it will bring to the homeless veterans and to the community at large. For example, when speaking with potential donors, we point out that nearly everyone we have talked to about the project has some kind of connection to the Canadian military whether it's a grandparent or parent, a brother, uh, a sister, a friend or a neighbor, we all know someone who has served our country. And we all agree that it is completely unacceptable for veterans who have served us so well in Canada and around the world to be homeless and not receive the support they need to heal. Um, And those who who we have reached out to have certainly been concerned to learn about the extent of the problem. For example, in May of last year, the House of Commons Standing Committee on Veterans Affairs reported that homelessness homelessness likely affects between 3,000 and 5,000 veterans across Canada. Um, And to that, I can add that there are likely upwards of 300 or more homeless veterans just in the Ottawa area alone. So clearly, this is a problem that needs fixing now. In making our approach, We have highlighted that our facility will ensure veterans have access to affordable housing as well as the important support services they will need to recover from physical health, mental health, and addiction issues. We also talk about the strategic partnerships we have formed and how we have taken a comprehensive approach in designing the building and the outdoor spaces around it. And of course, we let prospective donors know that while Multi-Faith Housing Initiative is leading this collaborative effort, We cannot do it without the support from the community. Our case for support also includes background information on MHI to assure donors that one, MHI is a financially stable organization, and two, that we have a successful track record. And we do this so that they have confidence in our ability to be successful in the venture. And I think it's also important to let you know that we have never felt a need to ask for donations at this stage. In fact, Our primary objective is simply to make sure the potential donors have full background on our overall operation, on the projects itself, and most importantly, that they are comfortable with supporting the cause. We know they have other interests and priorities. It's their choice. It's their money. Um, We do find that once someone is on board, they are generally agreeable to introducing us to other potential donors, which in turn can open up other funding sources. So, Just to recap, the key objective 
of the initial meeting with a potential donor is to determine whether or not the project is important to them. The meeting may end with them asking for time to mull things over. They may have more questions to ask, um, or they may move right on to discussing funding categories and payment plans. So, for example, we have options that include lump sum payments, annual payments, monthly payments, even estate giving. And as I mentioned earlier, we keep all donors and potential donors updated in terms of latest developments, and we invite them to join our major events. Obviously, they are essential for us to achieve our goals. This is really helpful, Mike, because sometimes when I speak to non nonprofit clients that we have, some people think that uh, fundraising and donation just like happens by itself. Uh, you'll probably just like launch a donation campaign and people will start paying you money. But um, you, what you are telling me is that you had to take a very systematic approach in uh, approaching fundraising overall and try to find a common connection that you have with the person you're speaking to. That way, when you're approaching the project, they actually feel a connection to the project itself. Uh, this is really helpful. Thank you. So, Mike, you are actually actively working in the nonprofit area in Ottawa, and there are so many other things that, that you could be doing. Instead, you chose this. You know, so how is your work making an impact on the community? Oh. Well, I think on, on, the, on the affordable housing front, I know we make a difference to the 400, soon to be around 450 persons who live in our units and will live in our units. Um, but not to get too carried away, the wait list for supportive housing in Ottawa now stands at about 12,000. So there is so much more that can be done, that needs to be done by MHI, by Ottawa Salus, and by other organizations that work in the area. Um, you know, fortunately, there's been a groundswell of support for the plight of homeless, the homeless. You know, um, for example, last year, the federal government announced its national housing strategy. That's a $55 billion 10-year plan. That's going to reduce, uh, it aims to reduce chronic homelessness by 50%, remove 530 families from housing need. Uh, modernizing 300 homes and building a number of new homes. So to meet these goals, the government has to work. You know, they're going to provide funding and grants and loans, and they have to work with groups like us. So I think, you know, we've made a difference. It's, it's a small ripple in the Ottawa area, but uh, we, we want to expand. We know there's interest in, uh, in what we're doing, both, uh, on the, generally on the affordable housing front, and certainly for the homeless veterans. And, um, and we, you know, what we do, we don't just work on this, but we're, we're liaising with the, with, with the politicians. So, um, so we were involved, we've been closely involved with the federal government. They knew about our project. Veterans Affairs Canada has been closely involved for a number of years. Um, CMHC is involved with what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but even at a city level, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, the uh, Ottawa City Council is certainly focused on the issue. As you may know, um, earlier this year, Council, Council unanimously passed a motion by Councillor Catherine McKenney to declare a housing and homeless emergency in Ottawa. And um, so, um, and, and she, she spoke, she's, she's, Catherine has spoken at our events, the mayor has been a, strong supporter of what we do and he's always at our events so um so part of our job is not just to 
to build these buildings and build alliances with other service providers, but it's to engage with the policymakers to make sure that, um, that they're appraised of the homeless situation. They know what we're doing to address the issue and, and that they know about what, what the additional support and resources are that we need. So, um, uh, so that, you know, for that's for affordable housing. I think that's, uh, you know, we're, we're making a difference, uh, but you've got to keep at it. That's the thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Mike, we're unfortunately running out of time. I know you and I can talk about this the whole day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so speaking of partnerships and alliances, what would be your key takeaway for our audience today? For partnerships, mm-hmm. um, you need to... You need to reach out and build meaningful alliances to expand your, your reach and your capabilities. You've got to keep following up. Ah, and for goodness sakes, you've got to keep your ego in check. <laughs> if, you, know, you have to remember whether your partner is a service provider or a donor, um, whether they're a board member or, um, you know, or, or you know, um, a construction company representative. They have their priorities. And in many cases, they have to report to boards or supervisors. So treat them all with respect. Keep them in the loop on a regular basis. Acknowledge their important contributions. And, you know, you use this phrase right at the beginning. Work towards win-win solutions when problems do crop up. That's excellent. That's excellent. So, Mike, I just have two quick questions for you in the end. Um, so what personal habit has contributed the most to your success? <laughs> Well, you might laugh at this. Um, sure. I would be surprised, but I mentioned uh, uh, we used to, I used to be in the Foreign Service and we lived overseas. So um, I meditate twice a day. I, uh, I was trained by a former Buddhist nun at a retreat in Thailand when I lived there about 20 years ago. And, and I find that it really helps to center me. And uh, it's, it's, it's among my most important daily routines. Um, it quiets the mind. It helps, uh, it helps, uh, increase focus. Um, I think it helps, uh, it helps me see things from a greater perspective. And, uh, so that's, uh, that's what I do. I think you can't work all the time. You've got to have, whether it's hiking, biking, swimming, you've got to do something. My kids do a lot of exercising and that's how they, they, they balance their lives. And I think it's important that, that people, people have that balance. Mike, I'm so glad you mentioned meditation. I meditate twice a day as well, once in the morning and once at the end of my day after work so I can calm down. So yeah, for our audience, meditation is key to keeping a calm mind. All right. And my next question for you, uh, can you share a digital tool or a strategy that you find highly valuable in your work? <laughs> sure. So I'm a bit older, so asking me about digital tools might not be, you know, sure. <laughs> you're going to say, what? That's, that's, that's come and gone. So uh but, but I, I think so I'll, I'll focus on the strategy. And, and I would say you can't go wrong with challenging yourself and, and looking for the positive in all you do. And of course, that can be a challenge in itself. So, but but if, you can, if you can challenge yourself with an open mind and a positive outlook, um, uh, many things can fall into place. Completely agree with you. There's a saying that uh, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. I think that's what you're saying. Yes. You have to push yourself, go outside your comfort zone, challenge yourself. Fantastic. All right. Absolutely. Mike, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, so how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about you or your work? Well, um, I, um, I live in Ottawa. 
I, um, I, uh, I could give you my, would you like me to give you my email address or my phone number? Sure. Okay. So um, my telephone number is 613-806-6728. And my email address is matw52 at gmail.com. Alrighty. So Mike, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, likewise, Farhad. I really appreciate this. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you.